You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome, welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew Beer and I, Niels Kastorlarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Andrew, great to have you on the podcast this week. How are you keeping and uh, where do we find you today? Thank you. I, well, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at home. Uh, I moved to Connecticut in January, so I'm back where I spent a long time uh, north of New York City. So uh, this is, I spend most of my time working here if I'm not traveling or, or, or in the city. Um, I hear you're going warm places next week. Yeah, I thank just, you. Look, thank you so much for having me back on. It's great to be here as always. Of course. Absolutely. I was just going to say that uh, I just got back from Miami. I hear you're going to Miami. It's very nice and, and sunny down there at the moment. So uh, I think it's You know, be it's cold, time. actually. <laughs> it was, I, was there, I was there for a grand total of about 36 hours this week. And then I go back oh, for really? the ETF conference on on. on and it was really not terribly warm. But, True, uh, warmer than it was here, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, you're, you're right. I mean, the the Floridians they complain about the temperature, but I thought it was really nice as a well. And and, and the hotel that we we're staying at, I mean, the I mean, in Celsius, it must have been couldn't have been much more than 18, 15, 18 degrees mm -hmm. in the hotel lobby. I mean, you had people walking around with, with down coats. I mean, it's always <laughs> it's like, it's like it just they didn't they didn't dial back these industrial strength ACs when the temperature had dropped 20 degrees. Right. So Sounds like a Scandinavian summer to me, 15 to 18 degrees, <laughs> but there we are. All right, we've got quite a varied uh, list of topics uh, lined up today, which I'll be excited to uh, to get into. Before we do that, I always ask you, um, just because I'm, I'm curious and I'm sure our audience is curious as well, kind of what are the things that uh, has come on your radar recently? What are the themes you're thinking about, which are not the things we're going to be talking about, but just generally speaking, what do you find interesting? Well, I think one of the things I find interesting, I mean, to me, as somebody who's spent a lot of time studying history and, and it, I mean, I, it feels like a very dark time right now. Uh, I mean, the Middle East feels very dark. Eastern Europe feels very dark. Um, the geopolitical situation seems very dark. The political situation in the U.S. seems comically dark um, uh, in a lot of ways. And, and yet, um, you know, so now I think when I talk to people, they think, you know, Trump is favored to win the second term. And, you know, which obviously strikes terror into the, to, to the hearts of large segments of this country. And, and um, uh, but what I find interesting about on the business side is that that is actually driving a fair amount of business optimism. That outside of the headlines and the acrimony and the anger and the um, you know, sort of unpleasantness of it all. I think there is a view in the business community that God, we really got to clean up some of this, you know, the extent to which the government is is more and more involved in in choking business activity in a way. Um, so that's just, it's just a very strong phase. And I've just seen it in the past several months um, where when it's become clear that uh, Trump is, is, is really now favored to win, that coupled with optimism is fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> Someone reminded me on Twitter this week that about my own 2024 outrageous prediction that neither Trump nor Biden will make it to the ballot in the end. And uh, so we'll see. Uh, but I do share your points. And it is in some ways kind of interesting that you, we live in a world where we can certainly say that the uncertainty and, and the geopolitical risks are, are heightened to a level that we haven't seen for a long, long time. Yet a lot of the financial markets are doing really well. Um, so there, there's a little bit of a kind of, um, maybe a disconnect, um, because on one thing you could say, you know, earnings looks great and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but there's just no, not being priced in neither in credit spreads, uh, et cetera. There's not being priced in that this could all go ter terribly wrong. So we'll see. Um, all right, before we dive into the topics, let's uh, do a quick review of, from a trend following point of view, and then I'll, uh, try and tie it in, um, with your help. Um, to the replicator world, uh, of course. And I mean, from my perspective, I would say the last week or so, um, there's a lot of trends that continue to play out uh, in the trend following world. And I think a lot of trend followers are taking full advantage of what's happening uh, at the moment after a somewhat more choppy year last year, the year of the whipsaw, as you coined it. And, uh, and last week, uh, I actually suspect that in a 
classical trend-following portfolio. I think a lot of sectors have been participating in delivering the performance that we're seeing uh, at the moment. Of course, with a few standout markets like Cocoa, uh, which hit uh, all-time highs. And um, of course, I was a little bit curious because we've been talking about Cocoa for a while now. And so I did look into it and it turns out that some of the key countries in terms of supply, uh, Ivory Coast and, and Ghana, they're seeing something like a 30 to 40% decline uh, in supply due to some yeah, seasonalities and some winds and some dry weather from, uh, you know, uh, El Nino, uh, I think was one of the uh, courses as well that they were pointing towards. Anyways, kind of interesting uh, at the moment. Um, and of course, at some point, Andrew, this will um, feed into the price of chocolate. Um, that um, So we may not have to, <laughs> we may not be able to afford our ch- uh, cocoa powder on our cappuccino. And next time I see you, but we'll see. Other than that, I think uh, other sectors, metals, uh, meat, the, for those who trade meats, energy, grain, maybe with the exception of something like soybean oil, also should have done pretty well. And actually also uh, fixed income uh, and equity positions. So incredibly broad-based, I would say, right now with a few uh, standout markets in trend following. We don't see that uh, so often. And perhaps the only sector I can think of right now that may be struggling a bit uh, is currencies. Not necessarily losing money, but but just not making a lot from what's going on. Um, and so I'm curious, when, when, when you hear these kind of drivers that I see, um, what do you see from a replicator point of view in terms of your own portfolio? Yeah, so, uh, it's, so it's a good question. So we, um, obviously, we see a very simplified worldview um, compared to how you talk about it. And I think the you know, I think when 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 Powell started talking November first, um, I, you know, I was skeptical that this was the end, right? And and obviously our portfolio and a lot of portfolios were very much betting on some continuation of higher rates. And even a month before that, people were talking about like, ah, you know, Powell doesn't have to raise rates again because the bond market because yields have gone up. So um, so when he pivoted uh, and then he reinforced the pivot by basically saying, um, I was. I mean, I was personally shocked by it, but that's not how we invest. We just try to figure out what what you and other, you know, well, not actually not you, but but you know, smart guys are 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 doing in the space who have the bigger, more diversified um, funds. But I, I've sort of come to the conclusion now that the hiking trade is over, right? You can bookend it. The the big trade, getting it early, it being a really contrarian trade, and then by the end of last year, it was, if you were short-term, you were already out of it and probably doing pretty well. And protecting yourself, if you're longer-term, it took a while to get out of it, but it's over, right? So we see sort of the the action has gone in fixed income. We have like slight flatter trades out there. It's not nothing terribly significant. Um, but what I find really interesting is, you know, I used to talk about the portfolio in 2022 as as being in crash protection mode. You know, it was, it was there was a period of time where it was just bearish everything. Uh, and now we actually see it going risk on, you know, so we've seen equity risk dial up. And um, I think the most interesting thing that we're seeing ties into some of the other stuff we'll talk about is is, is with the U.S. versus EM or international versus EM bias. Um, and then also uh, in the currency markets, our, our currency portfolios would be very simple, but it's also the decline of the yen. You know, the yen is is just, it's, it's just, you know, incredible. I think it's down 6% this year. And so, if you're concentrated in that, it's 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 been a big 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 benefit. But you know, I think the underlying theme in terms of what I talked about is is there's underlying all this dark macro stuff. I think there is a a different level of widespread optimism and risk on that is now we're now seeing in our portfolio, and I see it anecdotally when I talk to people. Yeah, no, I'm actually uh, impressed uh, that your performance is kind of keeping up with the index in a period where. Uh, there's a lot of smaller markets that are actually doing the heavy lifting for uh, trend followers like us, uh, and not the big one, and not the big markets, uh, uh, nor the big sectors. So um, yeah, so 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 good on you. Um, maybe, my, yeah, maybe, maybe lucky. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> well, better to be uh, lucky than smart, I guess. But there we are. Um, it's, it's working for now. <laughs> sure. And now uh, my own trend barometer finished the month, uh, not the month, but to finish the the week or, or as a Thursday uh, at forty three, which is still somewhat neutral to weak, um, which kind of ties in with what's going on for the Shock Gen Short Term Traders Index, which is 
up 71 basis points for the month, but it's still down 22 basis points for the year. And 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 for those who don't um, know, my, my own trend barometer is more short-term timeframes that's in the in the algorithms. Um, but as I mentioned earlier on, the the uh, index or the the CTAs and trend followers as a whole actually doing okay uh, so far this year. We have uh, the beta 50 up 2.25 for the month of February already. Uh, up three and a half for the year. Uh, Sockgen CTA index up two point four, up three point four for the year, and the trend following index SGE trend uh, up three percent and up four point two one percent for the year. Comparing that to the traditional markets, MSCI World equities are up two point three seven and up three point five four for the year. Uh, Welcome and bonds down again in February, down one percent uh, roughly. And uh, the S&P 500 uh, is up 3.77, obviously making new all-time highs this week, uh, and up 5.52% so far this year. Now, I don't know if this is the right time to mention this, but maybe, or maybe we'll talk about this. Are we going to talk about equities and, and, and stock picking and breath and stuff like that later on today? I'd be happy to yeah. talk about okay. it. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay, then I'll save my my points uh, for that. Okay, so you sent over a really good list of topics, uh, Andrew. And although the, I think the first one we probably have touched on before, but you may have some other uh, views thinking about it uh, today, and then we'll go on to some uh, topics we definitely haven't talked about before. Um, but 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 actually, I think the first one is very relevant. It's something that almost comes up one way or the other in the meetings that I'm having at the moment. And that's, you know, should you replace bonds with managed futures, but also vice versa, because obviously bonds have suddenly become very interesting compared to uh, a while ago, at least in terms of what what they pay. So I'm very curious to hear where, where we're going to go with this uh, from your perspective, Andrew. Sure. So, so I mean, I say it almost as a thought experiment, right? Because you have, I mean, people are not going to jettison bonds from, from, from their portfolios, but, you know, having done this for a long time and having spent a lot of time, that was, you know, probably would have been a history, I was a history major and I, you know, I sort of like thinking about longer term things, but also sort of fascinating in terms of how people look at recent history and how they interpret it. I think what's happened in the 2020s as it relates to bonds is earth shattering from an allocation perspective in a way that people haven't fully processed. Um, Because in the same way that when interest rates started to come back up, um, most allocators going into 2021, 2022 had essentially low rates bets throughout their entire portfolio. You know, if you like tech stocks and you like the S and P 500, which was largely tech stocks or being driven by tech stocks, it's hard to have that view unless you think interest rates are going to stay low. You know, if you've been loading up on AA rated corporate bonds with the one and a half percent yield at a 10 year maturity, if you think interest rates are going up, that's economic suicide, right? And so. Um, REITs, you know, real estate, you know, people are buying office buildings at, at, at low single digit cap rates. So, so it was, this was a trade that went through everything. And I think, I think taking a a bigger step back, the great trade of the 2000s and 2010s was owning bonds. And I think people don't appreciate how unusual that period is. So may I bore you with a few statistics to to just kind of put it got next. Okay. So looking, just running some numbers this morning, since 1990, cash has earned you 3%. And it is rational to think about how much better I'm gonna, am I going to do than cash over that period of time. So, I'm, I'm, by the way, my stocks, I'm going to use the S&P 500, um, home country bias, and I'll use the Bloomberg um, Ag for the measure of bonds. But basically, since 1990, um, stocks have done 700 basis points more than cash, which is what people call the equity risk premium, and bonds have two, done 200 basis points more than cash. But also the volatility of stocks has been around 15% and the volatility of bonds has been around 4%. So when you look at it, they actually have identical risk-adjusted returns, point, a sharp ratio of 0.5. Now, as Warren Buffett would say, when they say, if you didn't have Berkshire Hathaway, what would you do? And he said, I put 95% of my money into the S&P 500 and 5% in cash and not look at it. Stocks over that period of time since 1990 have got up 28 times. Okay. And bonds with much less risk have compounded and gone up four times over that period of time. So, but in that, the 2000s and 2010s, 
the single best thing you could own was bonds. So here are those comparative statistics, right? Cash does 2% over that period of time, right? This was the great bond bull market. Cash does 2%. Stocks do cash plus four, which we've forgotten about because we forgot that we had a dead, a lost decade for equities in the 2000s. And bonds do cash plus three. And you think, well, okay, cash plus three is not that big of a deal, except for the fact that also the volatility came down to somewhere in the low threes. And so the sharp ratio of bonds with just that incremental increase in returns by 100 basis points and a drop in volatility was 0.9 for 20 years. You had a max drawdown of 4%. So the incredible thing is when you look at the S&P 500 versus bonds over that period of time, for 16 of those 20 years, stocks have been outperforming bonds from the beginning. It's a straight line from the lower left to the upper right. So what's happened since, so, so what that did is it, 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 there's a feedback loop, right? It means that this idea of 60, and by the way, stocks had a, a uh, bonds had a correlation of, of minus 0.1 to, to stocks over that period of time. So one of the big trends in the background has been, you know, the whole wealth manager world has gone toward model portfolios. And when you're building model portfolios, you're looking at the past and generally extrapolating it out to the future. So you've had basically building asset allocation models on the basis of an unsustainable bond market. And, and, and just, and think about bonds, right? Think about how strange bonds are relative to equities. Let's say the company has bonds with a maturity, average maturity of seven years. It means that they're essentially the equivalent would be every year, 15%, 14%, 15% of everything gets retired and they have to keep reissuing it, right? How does the reissuing process work? When you read in the paper and they're like, um, you know, bonds are rushing things into the market because of this, you know, temporary drop in interest rates and credit spreads are really tight. There, you know, you have investment bankers and, and, and smart corporations try to sell bonds when it's cheap for them to do so. And, and on the other, other side of the table, you've got guys who are in the business of buying bonds. They've got one hammer and they're going to buy bonds no matter where they're priced. That guy cannot sit there and say, oh, screw it. I'm not going to buy bonds for the next five years. He's not going to have a job. So, so, so the structure, the industry structure is not designed to really give you the best risk-adjusted return on bonds. But it happened for 20 years because of this overriding drop in interest rates, because of the, the Fed's paranoia about deflation and constantly stepping in and, 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 and quantitative easing um, over that period of time. So now look at the 2020s. Okay. In the 2020s, cash has been earning 2%. Stocks have been on a tear. They've done cash plus a thousand over that period of time. And this has been a volatile period. So cash has done, so the, you know, volatility has gone from 15 to 20% in, in this decade. And so stocks with that incremental increase in returns, but also a little bit higher volatility, the sharp ratio has gone from 0.5, which would be normal to 0.6. Bonds, on the other hand, are down 1% this decade. And this is the part that people don't talk about enough. The standard deviation has doubled to seven. So you're doing 300 basis points worse than, than, than cash, but your standard deviation has gone up by seven and your correlation to, and your max drawdown has gone from four. I mean, it had a max drawdown of four over 20 years. Your max drawdown is 17%. And you have a positive correlation of 0.6 to equities. If this continues, there is no economic argument from an asset allocation perspective to have bonds in your portfolio. And it's not going to continue like this, obviously. But, but my point is that, is that think about where we are in five or 10 years from now. And you're an asset allocation cater building a wealth management portfolio. You cannot pretend that bonds have no risk anymore. You know, you cannot pretend that bonds are just this, I mean, that, that so, what it's going to, and, and you can't pretend that bonds are this perfect hedge anymore because now you can point to a period where they clearly failed. Everybody who had six, who had a 40% allocation to bonds over the past four years has failed to diversify. It has cost them. And so that's where you get into. So when I talk about managed futures and why I think managed futures, and I could you know, tell you the stats on managed futures, which you know as well, if you compare managed futures to bonds during the 2000s and 2010s, bonds were much better, right? You had identical, roughly zero correlation to stocks, but you had a third of the 
volatility. You had a much higher sharp ratio. You had, uh, you know, a, a third of the drawdown. I mean, you had, a, it, it was simply a much better way to diversify your stock portfolio. So the headwind for managed futures was not just, because ultimately all of these models are designed to protect you from equity volatility. You know, yes, you made 28 times your money over 34 years, but you go through brutal periods where, where, where everything looks like it's on fire. So you have to have, you know, an iron spine to weather it. But this decade, your protection didn't work. And, and so I think when I think about managed futures, it's not just like, like I've seen a curious thing recently, which is we kind of see these surveys of investors and a really, really surprisingly high number of people are saying, I want something that has very, very low correlation to stocks and bonds. And, and that's a reflection of the fact that, 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 that bonds and everything that's linked to bonds, whether it's, you know, REITs, whether it's property, et cetera, et cetera, is just not working anymore as a hedge against the thing that would have made you 28 times your money, but was what was very volatile. So I think there's this, I think when I think five years out and the guys that I know are building asset allocation models, there's going to be this existential reconsideration of whether 60-40 is the right starting point. Um, and, and as they shake up that model, then the question is, what can we find out there? And usually they're constrained, right? If it's a, if it's a sovereign wealth fund, they can do whatever they want. They can put all of Millennium and Citadel or whomever else. But, but what can we find that has low correlation that actually helps to diversify equity risk? And as I've said this a million times, the, you know, the absolutely utterly obvious answer, if you care about liquidity, if you need to invest in a usage fund or an ETF or some sort of a vehicle, um, is managed futures. And so there will be this natural buying tailwind associated with the strategy. And I think it's the opportunity for it to really go mainstream, but this is where I get into all of my pedantic messaging issues. I like what you just uh, mentioned. Obviously the argument the data argument as such has been here for a number of decades. These, you know, the, the, the data you run today is going to look very similar to the data you run, um, you, you ran 10 years ago or 20 years ago, meaning yes. And, and as John Lindner wrote about in 1983, adding managed futures to a stock and bond portfolio makes absolute sense and which he later got a, a Nobel prize for. But I guess what's happened now is what you point out to is that we now have a recent example where people really got into trouble uh, and of course where we in a bigger picture would say would say well maybe the the 40 years we had prior to 2020 was a unique period and especially the last 20 years leading into 2020 was an extreme period uh, and now we're just going to go back to normal. And if you go back to normal, uh, that means that most of the time stocks and bonds will be positively correlated. So you won't get the protection that uh, you got in in the first 20 years of this, uh, dec uh, of, of this century. So that's the change that I see as well. But what it will take to change investors' minds, I st I'm still struggling with personally, I have to say. Because um, when I meet people nowadays... And even if we have a very good argument on our side, people will say, well, now that I can get five, five and a half percent on fixed income, mm, that's very tempting. Uh, so why should I even need a, 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 you know, a, a CTA product? Even if we can argue to them and say, well, you're not, you're not really giving up very little because we have so much cash in our products uh, that you get that uh, inside the, the, the ETF or the usage or whatever you buy you get that as well. So you're really not giving up much, uh, but you get this wonderful non-correlated return trip on top. I still find it to be a really hard sell, Andrew. Sure. So, well, first of all, there, there are a million different kinds of investors, right? And we faced the same problem last year, right? We have everybody, cash was the obvious thing. And actually, you know, in January, people were talking about being the year of the bond, right? They were flat out wrong for 10 months. And then they got bailed out in the last two months of the year. Um, but again, this, this sort of also goes back to um, the industry structure, right? The industry structure, you're an advisor and you're, and you're looking to your clients. And the psychology there is getting that quarterly coupon is deeply comforting and satisfying 
for most investors. Um, you know, the idea of capital protection and not losing money. I've made, I worked my whole life to make money. I don't want to lose it now. Like I have an 89 year old dad, right? He shouldn't be swinging for the fences on anything, right? It doesn't, doesn't incrementally matter to him. What matters to him is, and, and, and the psychological value of seeing it, boom, it hits his account every quarter, matters a lot to him, right? So people will make decisions on the basis of their job profile. Um, what I, Bill Ackman has this great expression, basically that, 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 that incentives drive everything, right? And so what has happened is a whole industry has been built around this. Vanguard will go down with a sword in their hand about 60-40 portfolios because they've told everybody for 20 years, 25 years, that this was the simplest, most straightforward, easiest way to achieve your financial goals. And they were right for 20 of the 24 years. You know, so it depends on the, on the target audience. So I my guess is the typical pension plan, which had largely gotten out of managed futures by 2020, will have an allocation in, in three or five years. These guys move really slowly. But they do like statistics. They do like looking at historical data. They spend a lot of time thinking about kind of things. So I would add one other thing. Not only has, has the 2020s been disastrous for bonds, and and it's in one you know one of my partners that I work with, um, uh, you, know, you always used to say about it, one of the disadvantages of financial history is you only have one history. You know, when he was doing his PhD in physics, um, he could you could run a million different scenarios, you know, 10 million versions of what could have happened. And you can then kind of look at, at outcomes and things like that. We're stuck with one version of history and so are they, right? They can never claim that bonds don't have a lot of drawdown risk. They will justify it because they were the ones who also told their clients there. I mean, if you, you, that, that they would never go down like they did. There's not, I, I'm sure there's not a single consultant out there that told their clients that bonds could go down 17% across their portfolio at the same time as stocks, or that the correlations would turn positive. So, but the other thing that happened, and I think this is where, you know, just talk about the history, is 2022 is in the record books, right? 2022 was not supposed to happen from every allocator who had invested in the space, had a bad experience, and then told their clients the space was dead, right? But there will be new generations of guys who go back and look at it. You know, I spoke to guys yesterday who don't have any exposure to managed futures and they, they don't have the baggage, right? So the point is that, that, that it's not, I, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you're going to find people with 60, 40 managed futures portfolios, you know, S&P managed futures portfolios. And I would, I would argue every last breath not to do that if you're in the wealth management business. But I think the other, the other thing is, is, um, you know, and we've talked about this a lot, is, is I think the marketing and messaging in the space is tough because bonds feel safe. Stocks don't feel safe, but we've had decades of people from stocks for the long run and, and people being you know, Warren Buffett, everybody else saying, never give up on stocks. When it's down, if, do it, if you're going to do anything, buy them, buy the dip, all this other stuff. There's a whole language around it. And, you know, my, what I run into on the managed future side is it's a strategy that is complicated to explain. People like to get in and talk about the weeds very, very quickly. You know, the guys who, who built and run these businesses like that level of detail. The pension plans, the family offices that others used to talk about like to hear it as well. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. My God, Coco. Let's talk about Coco. But for the other 99% of people out there, it just scares them because they don't know what a futures contract is. You know, they don't, some of them don't know what shorting is. Like it's not, it's, I mean, they know about these concepts in general, but they're just trying to help their clients to grow their money and have a smoother ride and, and to sleep at night. And so there's always a risk for them, whereas they want to help their clients do that. The more complicated, opaque, difficult to explain an investment strategy is, the harder it is for them to help their clients to achieve those financial goals without agitation. So, I don't know how it's actually going to, uh, you know, how the whole thing is going to play out, but, but one of the disconnects that we've been trying to solve is that if you're an asset allocator, you're a guy building those model portfolios, you love things that are index-like because you're saying, because if you, if you decide to fill an asset allocation bucket with a single fund, like this was, this is in a sense what, I mean, you know, as I said, AQR did an incredible service with the space. 
when they launched AQMAX in 2010, because they came out with an institutional quality managed futures product that they themselves were going to build and run, and it was priced at 121 basis points. And so for an institutional investor that was, or wealth management firm that was a, a, a step function in quality and, and, and pricing relative to what things were. Not of their own fault, but rather allocators misinterpreted that. They thought, I love managed futures. AQR are the smartest guys in the room. I'm just going to fill my full asset allocation bucket with AQR. So that mutual fund went to $14.2 billion at the peak. It was, I think, 60% of the overall managed future space. Okay. ETF that space. That is a really, really... What's that? Not, not how much of, of the managed future space, you said? I think it was 60% of the... ETF space. Managed futures mutual fund oh, space. Oh, mutual fund space. Okay, yeah. yeah. Mutual okay, fund space, good. yeah. yeah. And it, because what people would say, because model allocators would say, they'd go through this analysis of the SockGen CTA index, and they'd say, hey, I want 5% in this, I'll put it all on AQR. Then over the next five years, because of what, however AQR configured their models, AQR underperforms everybody else by 20%. And the allocators at that, so imagine now you've made a 5% allocation in this space, and every time you sit down, you're like, the one guy we picked has done worse. So the feedback loop was not to say, uh, I'm gonna, uh, next time I'm gonna pick five guys. Right. <laughs> Next time I'm going to spread my bets because one of the constraints these guys have is that, you know, when they invest in U.S. large cap stocks, they pick an S&P 500 index fund or one or two funds. They don't, an institution will, will, will pick five guys. These guys have to pick one. And so the opportunity that we saw was for that particular audience, you know, this is the, and, and those guys care about fees. They care about the vehicle. We're going to try to give you a way of getting broad-based exposure to the space, something that looks sort of like index, like an index, even though it's synthetic and, 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 and simplified, because ultimately that's what they're looking for is in five years, if the Sockchain CT index does five a year, can, can this thing do five or six or, or, or something with a 90% correlation and not go through, you know, just long sustained periods of underperformance. Um, and part of that though is you know, these guys are not familiar with the space. They're not the hedge fund analyst at a family office or an institutional investor. They spend rightfully 90% of the time thinking about stocks and bonds and whether they add a little bit of EM or they get out of EM and stuff like that. So this space has to be packaged in a way that, that they feel is, is, is understandable, logical, uh, predictable in the sense of, of, of being index like, and that's my theory. And, you know, in, 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 in several years, we'll know if it, if it gets any traction or not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you guys have had traction, and so does uh, so has the industry as a whole. Uh, but of course, I'm still surprised by the um, um, by the under investment for sure uh, uh, in in the space um, with those kind of um, that level of evidence uh, on on our side. But we will we will see, and we'll talk about it as as it comes. I think we've covered a lot of the things that you put in your first point that we wanted to talk about. I just want to make sure, is there anything else that uh, we left out? We've talked about the practical issues um, that they face. Do you want to move on to... Uh... Sure. I guess, yeah, I, guess, I guess the thing that I would just... I mean, my, my sort of concluding point is this point about is, is no one can erase 2022. And, and back to your point about why not just invest in cash as opposed to managed futures, Look, collectively, we blew it last year, right? We've been telling people that as soon as rates are higher, you're going to get cash plus, right? And let me look at my, let's dig into my, you know, little napkin notes here. But from 2000 through 2020, the Stockton CTA index, net of all fees and expenses, did 200 basis points more than cash, right? So in a sense, it was like, it was like a, 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 a watered down, risky, volatile, confusing version of protection that you would have gotten from bonds when bonds were, and the great thing. Now look at this decade. It's done cash plus 400. And, uh, you know, sharp ratio 0.5, correlation to equities of minus 0.2, max run out of 10%. All those stats look great. But then everyone had said, when interest rates are higher, we're still going to give you cash plus. And the space gave you cash minus a lot last year, right? So, so the proving ground is going to be you know, this year, on the other hand, the opposite is true. So we get to the end of 2024. Let's say the overall space now had this incredible 2022 
this comparatively lousy 2023 and then you know and then and then interest rates settle at three percent on the front end or something and and the space is up six and that happens again in 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 2025 you know cash plus something then the pieces fall in place for 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 meaningful asset growth yeah i mean i think that um i think one danger is of course always to look at calendar years. Calendar years means nothing really in our industry because we know that um, that's just not how trends evolve that they take any notice of uh, what month we're in or anything like that. So I think it's very dangerous if you go out and you promise people just because rates are high over the next year or whatever period, we're going to give you X. This is a super long-term uh, cycle. I mean, even a, a, an example from from the firm that I work for, sometimes I come across investors. I mean, we're in our 50th year, right? 50-year track record in a few months. We're sitting at all-time highs uh, as of yesterday. And people will still ask me from time to time if I think trend following still works as a strategy. And I'm thinking, well, there's 50 years of evidence of that. So so I think it's it's just it's an ongoing journey. and and um, And this is also why the narrative is important. Because even though we have all the evidence now for, for this decade, it's still going to take some time, as you rightly said, before it filters in. But the good news is that they can't just change the data. I think that's an important point. See, that's, uh, it, to me, it's such an interesting question when people say, like, you know, do you think trend following still works? Right? Um, do you think value investing works? There, there's something about managed futures right, where, and I have sort of theories on this, so there's something about managed futures where people love to kick it. Right. And, and, and part of it is that like, if you didn't have managed futures in 2022 and 2023 rolls around, you are dancing, it's, you are, you are doing a victory dance. You've somehow been proven right. Right. And look, in 2023 wasn't terrible. I mean, we did worse than, than, than but we, we underperformed by, by, by more than I would have expected, but then we'll bounce, probably bounce back this year. I mean, there's going to be noise in what we do, but overall the space, um, I mean, coming off of 2022, but people were so focused on you got caught on this whipsaw or you got caught on that whipsaw. But I think that's what their job is, right? They're supposed to, they, they sit and they think about, you know, what's the tough question that I can ask that's somehow going to shed light on it and I'm going to get these guys in there, you know, push them back on their heels and they're going to figure it out. I'll have added, guys. Like, I mean, it, 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 I don't, to me, the whole point of trend following, and again, it goes back to who you're talking to, is question is, how tactical are you guys? You know, you honestly think that you can tell me today what not only what every asset class is going to do. We got I've talked to a consulting firm. They have forty-five different asset classes that they model them out for the next twenty years. That you think that's going to be more accurate? I said. So to me, as they said, you know, why should we add a forty-sixth thing for managed futures? I said because it does something you don't do. You know, you guys are. There's no way. I don't care if somebody told you World War Three is starting in a month and with a ninety percent probability, and all markets are going to crash you're still not changing your portfolio. You're going to walk into that propeller blindly because it's your job. You're not supposed to move. On the other hand, here's a strategy, and I'm still wrestling with like a better way to describe it than managed futures, but here's a strategy that's, that's nimble and can be contrarian and, and, and faster. And so if you're a long-term investor, you want a part of your portfolio to do that. Um, but this whole idea of like, does it work? Or does, I mean, ah, it's just, it, it, I, I, find, I find those questions irritating. Well, let's move on. I think there's some of the things that we've already talked about at least touch on. You you, you wrote to me, um, let's discuss whether the hiking trade is over, what comes next. I think you touched on that a little bit already. And you mentioned that the whole space now is risk on. We talked a little bit about that. But then you you raise another point, and that is who fared better, short-term or long-term guys. What 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 are your thoughts around that? What was your what was your thinking about it? Well, I think I think there were two um you, back to your point about calendar years, right? If if the calendar if the if the year ended on October thirty one, there would have been you know multiple years in a row where long term trend following did better. Um, and but November December sucked if you were a long term trend follower because you know and I guess the way that I look at simplistically is and, and by the way I should say that our replication models are better at picking up longer term trend than they are at picking up shorter term trends. But but in the US markets in particular, we compete with guys who part of their claim to fame is that they introduce a lot more short term models into what they do. Um, so we spent a lot of time studying it. And you know, our general conclusion 
And, and look, these guys may have, you know, magic modeling tricks that we don't have. Um, but when we look at shorter term trend versus longer term trend, what people love about it is you are faster to get out of the inflection points. What people don't like to talk about it as much as you are subject to getting short-term whipsaws and head fakes. And so when we look at just the long-term expected returns and how, you know, in 2022, when you get a decade of alpha from long-term trend following, you guys have multiple decades of alpha from trend following, longer-term trend following. Um, that to me is the thing that's really valuable from, from a portfolio perspective. But we had two brutal um, uh, inflection points last year. You know, you hit March and things collapse. Uh, the rates go absolutely crazy in March. And if you've got all of these tripwires in your portfolios, you get out faster. Now, the irony of it was by the time things settled down and we weren't going into the recession by June and the banking world was saved and, you know, and the carcass of Credit Suisse had been acquired by, you know, consumed by the UBS whale, I guess. And then rates started going back up again. Those guys were wrong-footed, right? So when I saw what I was looking at us versus these guys, it's yes, they did much better than us for three weeks and then much worse than us and you and other people and Alpha Simplex and other people over the next six months. And then, then they did much better in uh, November, December. And then we're wrong-footed again in January, right? Because they had gone too risk on, too early, too long bonds, et cetera. So, so I, think, I think my view on it has... I would say as an asset allocator, I think if you're thinking about investing in this space, your priority is to find long-term trend, however you get that. But the, the advantage of shorter-term trend is it's comforting. It, it may not increase your sharp ratio over long, a longer period of time, but if you, if you want to feel like, I mean, look, when a long-term trend reverses sharply, it's horrible. You're like standing under the propeller. You're like somebody, somebody pulled me out of here, right? <laughs> like it changed, but but having done this, you know there are you do get these head fakes in the market. So shorter term trend, you know, can ha, has this this sense of it sounds great. Oh, we're going to get in earlier. We're going to get out sooner, and and you just don't talk about the fact that yes, but in the meantime, you'll be bloodied by you know these week to week movements. So um, so I, I think in the U.S. actually, what we've seen people doing since that has value as an allocator, at least from a storytelling perspective, if not from an economic perspective, uh, we see people actually pairing what we do with one of those strategies and ba then basically being able to say we're somehow, you know, getting somehow diversification, getting broad-based exposure, um, which is not, it's, 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 it's quite rational. And, and if, you know, if we end up getting paired with these, uh, these mutual fund behemoths, um, as part of an allocation, I think that's great. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I mean, it's obviously a discussion that comes up uh, in, you know, from time to time. There are periods clearly where you, you're right, where uh, this narrative of short term uh, is so powerful that a lot of the flows will go in that direction. Um, but then people realize that actually it in the long run, it, they're just better off uh, taking the volatility that comes with the longer term timeframes. Um, and, and at the moment, that's what you see with some of the short term guys uh, where the flows are are going out uh, quite significantly. And in, in the last five years, prior to 2024, uh, the short-term traders index only uh, beat the SOCGEN trend index uh, one year. That was last year. Uh, you know, it was down 1.77%. The trend index was down 4.17%. So not by a lot. And it lost out a lot over the uh, prior four years in terms of performance. Um, so... Then you mentioned something, you say that we could maybe get into a wonky discussion about stock selection not adding value today like it did in the 90s. That I'm going to leave to to you to guide me into that one. Oh, so so one of the things, so this is, and this is, I hope you guys don't don't think this is sort of a, a, a pedantic history lesson, but I, I started in, uh, my first job was in 1990. I went, um, I was an M&A investment banker working for this Guy named Jim Wolfenson, who ended up running the World Bank. Um, I was actually also in, and Paul Volcker was the chairman of the firm, which is where I got a little bit of taste of of you know what Volcker went through in the 1970s and 80s. But but the interesting thing about it, so one of the things you do when you're an M and A banker is you spend a lot of time, you know, like we've got this client, do they want to buy something, and you do this a lot of this analysis looking at um, what are called publicly traded comps for that industry. So okay, they're in, you know, they sell widgets. 
let's look at all the widget manufacturers and do a financial analysis of, you know, the profitability, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what you found back then was that if you looked at a given industry, there were companies that were obviously the A players, and there were a lot of companies that were the C players that were still around. Now, there were fewer of them that were around in the early 1990s than, say, the early 1980s and 1970s because you know, leveraged buyout firms were out there. Um, uh, the M&A world uh, and, and takeovers had started to, um, you know, to basically, if you're a really badly managed company, uh, somebody, activists or somebody would kind of, kind of, kind of shake it up. But, but the world back there in general was, and again, we're coming out of the 1980s where, you know, the big horror of the 1980s was that um, when, uh, in the 1970s was when, when Japan is exporting cars to the U.S., it's not only that it's great for consumers, but it shines a light on the fact that a lot of American industry, you know, was really had, had kind of sort of rotted over time. Uh, you know, you had these corporate boards who weren't really paying attention. You had guys who, you know, concepts that you think about today, like should I repurchase stock? Should I, you know, what's the optimal level of leverage? Uh, how do I think about optimizing cash flow and return on capital? This was really, really rare stuff. And so the opportunity the LBO firms had was an ability to apply these more sophisticated ways of looking at companies and, and, and you know, figure out, separate the wheat from the chaff. But broadly, by the early 1990s, if you're a stock picker, you, know, you could still look at an industry and say, okay, this company is a terrible company, but they're really cheap, but I'm guessing somebody's going to come along and, and shake it up. Um, and lo and behold, so, so you could buy the bad companies, expect something to happen, or you know, the, the pricing of these companies was not, not as great. And a lot of this was based on the idea that um, this, this growing belief that what companies should do is really focus on what they do well. In, in the 1970s and early 1980s, there was this idea of, of, of conglomerates. You know, GE. GE is going to have this, you know, kind of management playbook, and they can just buy companies in any industry and make them better and, and, and take advantage of it. That idea was essentially discredited uh, by the early 1990s. And a lot of LBOs and people would buy these companies, they'd break them up, they'd sell off the pieces. They sort of realized that actually you could um, add a lot of value. And there was also a view that people in manufacturing and outside, of, like all the talent was going to finance and consulting and these things that people viewed as not you know, additive to the country's GDP over time. And so, you know, so, so, so the dominant view about companies during the uh, 1990s, 2000s, 2010s was you know, focus on what you do well, focus on return on invested capital, return capital to shareholders to, you know, drive up your stock prices. And that was driven by stock options, you know, that was driven by uh, independent corporate boards. If you didn't clean up your act, you were going to get uh, acquired and thrown out. So it was a phenomenal period, you know, profit margins went up. Um, uh, and this is again, going back to Warren Buffett, who I think in a hundred years, people still think was, you know, one of the smartest people ever in finance. Um, you know, where he said, people said, you know, why would you just buy the S&P 500? And he said, because you got 500 incredibly hungry, smart guys who run these companies, go to the office every day, try to figure out how do I make money for our shareholders? How do I make money and for myself, obviously? And, and you got corporate boards who wanted to do that. Um, so American industry really turned around. And now look at the companies that are dominating it. So take a company like, you know, a Microsoft or Alphabet. Um, so these are, in a sense, the, the, the modern version of the old industrial companies and they're conglomerates. Like, think about the fact that, I mean, Microsoft's in the cloud business. These, these businesses that didn't exist 10 years ago, but it wasn't discovered by some BC firm who invested in a company and then they become the industry disruptor. These guys are, are, are taking the cash flow of their businesses and they've become the capital allocators. They're the ones who are bringing AI to the world. They're buying off competitors when they think they're competitive because they know about, about, about threats from competition. So they're buying up companies. So you basically have these Frankenstein versions of the conglomerates of the 1970s, but are run by guys who are unbelievable. You know, they're hardest working, smartest, full-throated, rapacious capitalists trying to figure out how to avoid having their companies become, uh, uh, be disintermediated, et cetera. So the AI thing to me over the past year 
is a really, really challenging thing to alligators because it's not supposed to happen. You know, you're not supposed to have these gargantuan industry players also be fastest and, and smartest about figuring out how to get in and dominate this new industry and deploy tens of billions of dollars overnight in, in yet another race to be first, to be fastest, to get a dominant industry share. So I think, I think when people look at, at things like uh, the Magnificent Seven versus other companies uh, in you know, the other 493, whereas, yes, I'm sure you can have valuation disparities where you're overpaying. I think somebody just told me that they have, you've looked at like a 50 PE on it. But on the other hand, they're also much, much, much better as businesses than anything that we've seen. Um, and I think, so just part of what's fascinating is where we started, is when I see this view of you know, potential optimism also around, say, the U.S. economy and U.S. stocks and risk on, it seems integrated into this idea of, you know, when you're betting on, on, on U.S. companies, you are, if you had to bet on the Magnificent Seven, I mean, these are, again, it, it doesn't seem crazy to me to be betting on these companies. And I think that's what hedge funds started to realize about a decade ago was, yes, they might be expensive, but you're not just they don't obey the normal laws of competition where you're a dominant player and then these other disruptors come in and they start taking it away from you and you're kind of desperately clinging to this, you know, melting ice cube and try to, and then, you know, and it's just, and, it, and 20 years later, somebody else is the dominant player. These guys know that history. You know, they know, they know what happened to Xerox and Kodak and Polaroid and all these companies that were, that were this. So, so they are spending all their time trying to figure out how not to make that happen. And just sort of an interesting analogy, I think, for hedge fund, for wonky hedge fund people is, um, you know, last year was the 25th anniversary of long-term capital. And I was talking to, to, to journalists and others about it. And I was saying, you know, the thing that you have to realize is we, we look at that and we're like, ah, this means one of the multi-strats is going to blow up. You know, those guys have been spending 25 years thinking about how not to be the next long-term capital. So it just, I think it just shows a limitation of some of these historical analogies in that, in that I think when you're thinking about these analogies, you have to think is, has the world changed and why has it changed and what does that mean? And so if you're now a stock picker where we started this and you're giving money to, like if you're giving money to a multi-strat hedge fund, you're relying on Ken Griffin and Izzy Englander and their teams of geniuses to figure out how much to put in this particular strategy, when to cut risk, et cetera. You've, you, you've, you've abdicated or you've, you've outsourced the hedge fund picking process to these guys and you'll pay them a lot of money for it. By analogy, when you give money, when you own Microsoft stock or Alphabet stock, you're also outsourcing part of the stock picking and capital allocation process that you would have done 30 years ago. Yeah. And adding to all of that, is the even crazier thing that the Magnificent Seven are now the Fabulous Four. Because this year is very different. Almost 75% of the S&P 500's total return so far the year, this year comes from Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. So it's even narrow. I mean, it's... Um, it is crazy. Not a lot of breath in that uh, market, unlike what we see in the uh, in the managed future space at the moment, where there are lots of different, lots of different trends. Is there one or two topics that you want to just touch on? Uh, you mentioned some uh, hedge fund flows before we wrap up, or is there anything else you wanted to? Um, you mentioned oh, the dollar. No, so, well, I mean, I think one thing. I mean, one thing. I, I just did pull up some data this morning, which I just thought was interesting. So, one of the one of the stats my partner sent me is that. Um, you know, as you know, in the U.S., the broader asset management space in the U.S., ETFs have been taking market share, you know, for a decade, decades at this point. Um, in the U.S., um, we were just looking at the managed futures ETF space versus the mutual fund space. And the mutual fund space, I, I didn't check these numbers closely, but I think it's basically the mutual fund space peaked at about $28 billion in the third quarter of 2022. It's down to $17 billion now. So you've not only had that from giving up profits, but you've actually had meaningful outflows. Um, the ETF space, um, which in 2022, I think there were two or three ETFs out there, maybe maybe four ETFs. The number of ETFs has doubled and ETFs are now about 10% of the overall space. So I think by analogy, um, I think people have fought doing these kinds of products and ETFs in the past because ETFs tend to be a more price competitive market. 
there are lots of reasons why it can be harder to sell an ETF in some of the major wealth management platforms. Um, but I think what you'll likely, I think just by analogy, you'll see more people come into the ETF space. And, you know, as we've talked about, one of the, the one of your guests uh, is supposedly on schedule to launch their ETF um, in the managed future space sometime in the first quarter. So going back to kind of the broader point about adoption is there need to be more voices out there making the asset allocation arguments. And the ETF world is, yeah, if we're at one and a half or 1.7 billion across all the funds in the space, you know, you're still talking about 0.2% of the ETF world for a strategy that has more demonstrable diversification benefits than anything else that we, we, we found in the ETF world. Um, so I think, I think we are, you know, at, at the very, 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 very beginning of what's going to be, uh, not even a decade long process, but probably a multi-decade long process. And, and it, it, it feels like it's building momentum and getting traction. Yeah, I do worry that the, the, the final success for this industry, Andrew, will happen after my retirement at some point in the next 20, 30 <laughs> years. But I, I will hope that you'll continue uh, talking about it so I can just listen to, uh, to people talking about the successes, the inroads that we finally made, uh, made it to a 2% allocation of the overall uh, equity uh, uh, assets under management in equities, for example. Anyways... Um, before we'll we, be, we'll, be, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be the old men quoted, quoted in some book. <laughs> it's like in the Muppet Show, these two old men sitting and bitching about these things like uh, every week. Anyways, did you want to talk a little bit about, um, you talked about a flow, stock pickers um, losing money in the hedge fund space. You talked about the dollar before we wrap up or how do you feel about it? Oh, look, I, so one thing, uh, a guy named Costas Morsalis from uh, the Financial Times wrote and with Lawrence Fletcher wrote a very good article the other day on on this kind of existential crisis in equity long short hedge funds, um, which have lost 150 billion uh, in AUMs, uh, and you know when when we talk about flows and what the future is going to look like in five or ten years, I think we always underestimate how slowly people move. Um, that that what these investment ideas become canonical, and you get these industries that built get built up around it that end up supporting it, whether it's you know, everybody should have 40% of their portfolio in fixed income, whether it's, um, you know, hedge funds and, and, and the different categories of hedge funds. Equity long short really hasn't added value in a very, very long time. And, and I say this as a guy who runs an ETF that replicates equity long short. Um, one of the, the great ironies of replication of things outside of managed futures is you basically can replicate, you, we've, we've proven that the industry can be replicated um, through simple factor exposures and also in some ways proven how uninteresting it, it can be um, as, a, as a diversifier, which is why managed futures has been so pivotal to our success because you can say, A, in, in our opinion, we think you can replicate it and B, it's amazing from a diversification perspective. But equity long short, like, I mean, this is, you know, the stock picking thing is a real problem for them. Why are you paying somebody one and a half and 20 to own the Magnificent Seven? Um, you know, why are you, a uh, shorting hasn't worked in years and years and years. Uh, and so to me, you know, an article like that, if, if, if those guys had called me and wanted some, you know, pithy quote grenade, I would have said the, the question isn't why these guys have lost so much money. The question is why, why they still have so much today anyway. And, and I think that's where it takes a very, very long time for, these ideas, which you know, the economist Paul Krugman would call zombie ideas, once they become canonical, it's very, very hard for people to give up on them. And so the change is coming, but it will come in a slow, halting, you know, frustratingly slow manner. So hopefully you and I will not yet be retired when, <laughs> when, it, when it really starts to kick into gear. Finally, the Financial Times also had an article about the, the dollar. I think you picked up on that. Hedge funds ditching oh, the yeah, dollar so bit. Just, I mean, like it just. I mean, we're, we're sort of back to at least in our portfolio, we're sort of back to this king dollar trade. Um, and I think that's you know where we started, where there's this very strange, like if you read, I don't know. I mean, you you, you get drawn into CNN or Fox or something. I mean, it sounds like it just everything just sounds and feels horrible and depressing and 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 angry and all these other things. And that's, but I think when you look at you know. Look, when you look at AI, you look at the other, you look at AI, you look at technological developments, you look at, I mean, it, on the other hand, you know, the, 
the, the, the resilience of the U S economy through these rate hikes. I mean, it's, it's you, if, if you, if you throw the other stuff aside, there is this optimism. And one of the things that I just find interesting, and of course with, you know, with managed futures, it, it could obviously change relatively quickly is just a sense that, uh, I think, you know, the big theme a year ago was that we were in for a decade of resurgence of Europe, you know, emerging market was historically cheap. It couldn't get any cheaper. Um, uh, there was this kind of view that there would be this valuation normalization that would occur <coughs> across different areas with sort of almost with sort of an anti-US bias, you know, that it was, um, and at least right now, uh, I see a lot more optimism uh, in, uh, you know, ironically, because I don't think people think it's wonderful for democracy or a lot of other reasons, but, but I think there is this pushback on what people view as just an, an astonishingly unfriendly environment for businesses and the prospect of some lifting of that and some, you know, return to appreciation that, that, that capitalism is the one thing that drives wealth. And I think if we, if we, if we start to see a pushback ahead of that direction, I think it's, it's very positive and, and the U S is, is well positioned for that. Yeah. To draw on my Danish heritage, just to um, put put a little sort of a um, interesting observation, and that is, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of politics at the moment is uh, focusing on the negatives, and there are a lot of negatives. I, I don't uh, uh, dispute that, but actually, the the one party that is seeing the biggest surge in in posit- in a positive way in Danish politics is actually a party where they really just talk about all the good things, and and especially about. Uh, you know the young people and 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 the opportunities instead of just talking about all the negatives uh, about it. And I think if that's the kind of messaging that is starting to win um, support, um, that's a good thing um, that we can start talking about all the positives. Just Not like here. you and I, just like you and I talk about all the positives, the trend following and managed futures. Um, you know, it's a bright world out oh, there. It's it's. I mean. The the discourse here is not productive, <laughs> so so I'm glad I'm glad to see that. I mean, I think there's the, you know, there there's a a, a book called The Rational Optimist, which I, I recommend that every everybody to read, um, and it basically talks about, you know, how easy it is to be consumed with pessimism, um, and how often that view is wrong, and why you know somebody like a Warren Buffett would look through all of this and and. Uh, you know, and have confidence in uh, in these things over over longer periods of time. And I think and I think that's the side that we're missing, which is that when you look at something like climate change, you know, but then you remember how many smart people are trying to figure out how to solve this, how many resources they're being given to try to figure this out. In the same way, I mean, almost in the same way that whatever your view was on COVID, um, it was a really interesting period of time where it was almost like we had this alien invasion. You know, countries around the world, there was initially like fights, you know, like, you know, you can't fly here and we're not going to fly there and, you know, shutdowns and lockdowns and all sorts of crazy stuff. But, but there was a general collective sense that humanity was against some external opponent. <laughs> and there's like an, and so, so it sort of brought together in a sense, like all central banks were kind of working together. Uh, you know, there were, everyone's working to, to make sure the financial markets kept, kept, kept functioning. Governments were in theory sort of sharing information and stuff. And that's just that's just all fall, fallen apart recently. But hopefully the pendulum will will swing back, um, uh, and we won't have this kind of you know further geopolitical descent. Well, you know, as our one of our guests on the show uh, end of last year, Neil Howe, uh, the author of the Fourth Turning, said um, things will get really really bad, but they'll get so bad that the world actually will wake up and realize that that is just not the way forward, and the next generation of leaders will take over and. And actually, community and support of and working together uh, will be the way we eventually. And it's unfortunately not tomorrow, but eventually um, things will turn around again. Well, I think I think that I was talking talking to somebody who in the sort of twenties, like he was in his young twenties, and he was talking about the current political situation in the U.S. and um, you know, and and whether democracy was on its last legs. And I. God, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I just, I just don't see it. Right? It's like, I mean, when we're talking about the fact that we have somebody who, whether he is actually an avowed authoritarian or truly anti-democratic, whatever you view, the guy's in court, right? And you can, whatever you think about the, like, the discussions are not, 
have his political opponents been thrown into the back of vans and, you know, accidentally fallen off buildings? The conversations are, are, you know, is it justified for politically motivated prosecutors to prioritize, you know, going after this guy for things that I think most people would think in many circumstances are, or some of the circumstances are, are, you know, are not remotely commensurate with, with the, you know, prosecutorial action, but it's happening at that level. Right. And the question is, is the Supreme Court going to allow, like we have a functioning court system. So, so, you know, I think this is where there's, I just encourage aggregators like, God, read history. You know, you want to see a democracy falling apart, read about Weimar Germany and what happened there. Um, and it's not, it, it takes a lot more than this wonderfully prosperous economy that we have that goes through, through hiccups and to get people out into the streets and engaging in violence to overthrow, um, systems. So, um, there's just been, particularly since, since October, where it's just, it seems like people have just given up on actually reading books and history and they're getting all their information from 30 second videos. It's just, it's, it's, it's lunacy. Which is incredibly, um, worrying given the fact that probably most information today is curated for us as individuals. So w what is the truth anymore? Um, well, the truth people can get on this little channel because we talk about the truth when it comes to trend following, systematic training. We're truth tellers. This is where everybody should go. Exactly. For, for all of their information. <laughs> we Don't I sound old? We deliver the good and the bad here. But yes, no, it's, um, it's, it's super interesting. And of course, um, with so many countries going to the elections uh, or having elections uh, this year, um, it will be a very different year um, when we, you know, when we talk a year from now, uh, for sure. Anyways, let's leave the politics aside uh, because I normally uh, tend to uh, avoid too much of that. But what I will say is that if people um, like these positive conversations about the bright future that trend following and managed futures have, and all the other stuff that we talk about, of course. Um, head over to your preferred podcast player, Amazon, uh, Spotify, Apple, whatever it is, and leave a rating and review. Um, it certainly helps. And of course, even better, if you would also share the podcast with your friends and family, uh, we would be ever so grateful. Next week, we'll probably leave the politics aside uh, because we're going to be joined by Rich, and I'm sure he has something up his sleeve. Uh, that will be uh, another masterclass more into the 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 the, the weeds I should, was the word I was looking for the weeds of some of these um, benefits uh, that we see at least uh, in in this little uh, space and of course if you have any questions you can email them to info at toptradersonblog.com and I'll do my best to bring them up from Andrew and me thanks ever so much for listening we look forward to being back with you next week and in the meantime take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.